Hi, I'm Lisa Mirabile of Vertigo Media Group, and I'm here with Robert Stricker, Chief External Affairs Officer of the EAC Network, and this is our EAC More To Do podcast. Robert, how are you today? Lisa, I am wonderful. Thank you for having us and thank you for hosting. Thank you to the Vertigo Media Group for hosting uh, the More To Do podcast. Uh, it's always great to be here, and uh, we have very, very special guests today, not one, but three. And we're so proud to be working with the Staten Island Richmond County DA, um, and um, we're really happy that we have this partnership. And I know it has a, a, a huge impact on the residents of Staten Island. So without further ado, we without should introduce further, our guest, let's right? Let's do that. Uh, he doesn't need an introduction uh, to EAC fans uh, and, and, the, and the programs of people that we deal with. Uh, this gentleman was uh, our guest of honor, our public service uh, leader at our Building Bridges Cal last November. Made it all the way to- That's right. Yeah. I that was fabulous. And we were so lucky to have him. It was. And they they made a shout out to all of our group. Uh, the DA made a shout out to our group. And they were so excited that you mentioned them at the gala. Um, Staten Island DA, Richmond County DA, Michael McMahon. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much, Bob, for having us. And Lisa, thank you so much for hosting. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you. I'm joined by Amanda Wexler, who is our Hope coordinator, uh, and also uh, she's a licensed social worker and um, also heads up our victim advocates unit, which is uh, major components of our alternatives to incarceration team. Uh, and James Clinton is with us too. He's a member of our community uh, partnership unit. So we look all look forward to speaking with you tonight. Welcome, and uh, thank you for joining us, and thank you for all the work that you do on behalf of Staten Island residents and really uh, the city, right? Uh, most of the work that we do at the EAC network, uh, we have 114 programs. Lisa and I talk about this all the time. I think uh, last week it was 110. So we are growing and, <laughs> and it does change on it any given day because there is so much you know to do. Yeah. Hence the name of the podcast. There's more to do. There's always more to do. And if we went through our elevator speech, we'd be here till tomorrow um, with 114 programs. But we want to hear from you. We want to hear from your team. We're so happy that you've joined by your team, right? Because we know it takes more than one person. It's not just the DA. It's not just the police commissioner. It's not just, you know, the social worker. It's not just, you know, whomever um, is out there that's helping people. So and not only that, but you often hear about all the things that we do here on Long Island. So it's really great to have you as an extension and really bring forward recognition and awareness of all the things we do out in Staten Island. So thank you so much for being here today. So uh, DA McMahon, can you tell us a little bit about your history? I know uh, obviously you've been in elected office for quite some time and you at different levels. Tell us a little bit about you and, and, and your ascension to the Staten Island DA. Sure, so uh, I'm what we call a native uh, or lifelong Staten Islander born and raised here. Uh, and I've been a lawyer for over 35 years uh, varied legal practice, uh, but I also was very much involved in my life in um, community affairs and politics. So uh, while practicing law and in criminal and civil cases, I also worked for a, a part time for the state legislature. And then in 2001, I ran for the city council. So I represented the North Shore of Staten Island, the city council. Um, and then after that, I was a member of Congress uh, from Staten Island and Southern Brooklyn. And then in 2015, I ran for district attorney, and I've been in that office since that time. An interesting profile in politics because I'm a Democrat in a very Republican uh, county. And I say that just because it, it's sort of um, 
help modulate some of the, the policies that we try to implement and the approaches that we take, we have to be mindful of always building support in the community for what we do. Um, but uh, being district attorney, in my mind, is if you like public service, if you like making a difference, if you like using the legal system to do that, then there's no place better than the district attorney's office because we deal with individual cases and people when they're in some of the worst conditions of their lives, whether someone charged with a crime or someone who's a victim of a crime. And that really speaks to that traditional role of what a district attorney does. We all know from law and order that the police make the arrests and then halfway through the show, the DA's office takes over and they, you know, they decide how to charge it and how to prosecute the case. And that's the traditional role. But the reason I ran is because I felt that the DA's office would be a platform to do so much more. And so I consider myself a modern prosecutor where the main thrust of our work is preventing crime and dealing with the issues that unfortunately fall to the police for the most part, to the fire department, EMS, and to us, uh, partnerships, partnerships. Uh, to deal with. So what are we talking about? What, what are the issues that we talk about in society today, right? We talk about the mental health crisis. We talk about the addiction crisis. We talk about poverty, lack of education, breakdown of the family structure. All of those things are things that we are working with EAC to deal with someone who's charged with a crime and trying to find an alternative to incarceration and a program that you all offer to us. And I'm glad you have 114. I think in Staten Island, we only have about 12. So I'm looking <laughs> to get the other 102 out here. And that's really where our partnership with you guys comes in because, you know, we have someone in court and we want to, you know, they're charged with a, a low level felony or, or a nonviolent misdemeanor. And we're trying to get them into mental health treatment, addiction treatment, um, family counseling, uh, education, literacy, or anger management. That's really what the DA's office is today. And when I came into office, there was a traditional office staff here. There were about 100 people, um, primarily prosecutors uh, and investigators and a few victim advocates. We now have a full team of victim advocates, social workers. We have outreach peer navigators, individuals who are in recovery themselves, going out and working with people who are in the criminal justice system, but even before they get into the criminal justice system, and a much fuller complement of ADAs who, you know, we established a domestic violence bureau, as I said, with a victim advocates team. There were four when I came here, now there are 14. I go on and on, but the point is that we, you know, more than doubled the size of the office, and it's just a head count. It's the quality and the ability to do the work that's needed to keep the people who stand on safe, still my prime mandate but also to help individuals in need. You know, at least I, I don't think I've ever heard modern day DA, right? I'm not sure I've heard of that term. I think it fits exactly what you're talking about, Sarah. So thank you so much for, for that. Uh, again, we're going to talk to your team um, about it. What's the thing that maybe that Lisa and I don't know about? What, what's the, what would surprise us about your work as a DA uh, in, in Staten Island? You know, yesterday was National Fentanyl Awareness Day. And that's a very appropriate and timely to our discussion today, because when we came into office, and this is before COVID, and this is before the uptick in gun violence and the uptick in crime that we saw, we were in some of the lowest years for crime, not only in Staten Island and New York City and Long Island, but in the country. But what we found when we came into office is that Staten Island was in the throes of a terrible opioid addiction crisis. 
People were literally dying. And when I was running for office, I would meet funeral directors who would grab me and say, if you get elected, you have to do something about the overdose crisis because we are dealing with individuals who died from that. It's going unreported and you're seeing it, you know, time and time again. And then we'd hear from families and there was really no handle on this crisis. And so when we we came in, I pledged to do something about it. And Staten Island, I mentioned the politics of it, right? So we are by far the midsection or the Ohio of New York City, right? We're middle America. Two parties are active here, unlike the rest of the city of New York. Much more middle class, mostly one and two family homes, many city workers, cops, teachers, firefighters, but also just, you know, working couples, single families. Some parts of the island are diverse and some are not. But it's clearly, you know, as, as a borough, the most middle class as well. And the opioid epidemic that we saw in the last decade, in this decade, really started as a middle class problem because it started with the pills and the pills that came from the Sackler family with Purdue Pharma and all of their nefarious partners and flying this poison across the country. And everybody heard about West Virginia and Ohio, I mentioned, and Indiana. But people weren't talking about it in the city of New York at all. So we did two things when we came in in 2016. We started Overdose Response Initiative, where we were tracking real time every overdose like a crime scene so that we could go after the dealers, try to build cases. But uh, just as importantly, if not more importantly, we were getting real time health data as to what was going on. We weren't waiting 18 months to get it from the health department. So by May of 2016, my first six months in office, we had one week where 10 Staten Islanders died from an overdose, and we were the only ones who knew it. So it allowed us to really sound the alarm on this crisis, this epidemic, and it then spread across the rest of the city. And I know you have it in Long Island as well, because it, you know it's also was very active out there. And I worked with the DAs out there and, and the police chiefs on a opioid task force in 2016 statewide. So that came to not only to our attention, but that's where we really focused work with our different partners. And that's really, to me, was the biggest surprise of how deep that problem was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lisa, you can see why D.A. McMahon was our public service leader award. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, I, you're dealing with a lot of stuff um, and, and obviously it's, it's, it's life-threatening and it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> um, uh, Amanda, we met a couple of times, right? We met uh, pre-gala, we met at the gala and uh, we were in your <laughs> office. We'd love to hear from you. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, your title and, and what you do in the DA's office? Yeah, absolutely. So my official title is Clinical Director of Diversion and Victim Services, which really encompasses the clinical side of alternatives to incarceration. So my counterpart is an assistant district attorney who's the unit chief and makes the legal decisions. And then the other side, victim services, I work with another director who oversees a team of 13 victim advocates. So they're serving the victims of crime. I really have one foot in each side of what happens in the criminal justice system. And I think that's helped me because I came to the office really as a big advocate for people with substance use disorder and mental illness and who were struggling to get through the criminal justice system and meeting the district attorney and hearing his ideas about what he wanted to do was it was a perfect fit for what I was looking to support and advocate for. I'm also a lifelong Staten Islander and we tend to do that. <laughs> we like it here and then we stay here. 
I'm also a mom of two little boys. And so this it's something that's on the forefront of my mind of how we do the prevention work. There's so many things that this office has been able to do with youth and with the community, which is important to me to make sure that we're shifting the tides as we, we go through the work. And on the other hand, I came from an outpatient addiction treatment center where I was a program director for about 13 years before I came here. And I had been to more funerals than I could stomach at that point. And it was people who I knew as a therapist, people who I knew just from living here. I was going to funerals of people who didn't have a single wrinkle on their face and were wearing their Adidas, you know, track suit because they didn't even own a suit yet because that's how old they were. And it was important to me as a social worker to never lose touch or empathy with the work that I was doing. But it had started to get to the point where I was numb to all of it and I was showing up, but I couldn't connect with what was happening. And I felt like I needed to make a change both personally and professionally to be able to do more. So when I came here, it was the opportunity to oversee the HOPE program, which was something that hadn't been done. And instead of working with my organization's caseload of about 350 clients, we were working with thousands of cases every day to you know, look at, oversee, move through the system, think about who were people who were sick and that sickness was precipitating their crime and who were the people that were committing crime because that's what they do. So sort of being able to help give thoughts from, I guess, a clinical perspective on those cases. Yeah, so that's how I got here. And from there, I, now I'm working on a team where we have recovery coaches, people with lived experience, people with lived experience in the criminal justice system who have done EAC programs and other programs to sort of change their life and move out of that. And maybe that's for another podcast, but they're interesting to speak to as well and hear their perspectives from being on that side of the system and now working here and being amazed by how prosecutors care and, you know, how the person that they're prosecuting, they recognize as part of their community too. People of Staten Island include the people that we're prosecuting. So, sure. yeah. Listen, uh, we're, we're, this is the More to Do podcast, the EAC More to Do podcast. Uh, we've heard uh, so many great things so far and really um, life-changing uh, uh, um, work uh, that you're all doing there. But uh, we, our partnership with the Staten Island DA is strong. Uh, we want it to be stronger. Uh, Mr. DA, you talked about 12 programs in uh, Staten Island. I want to add a 13th tomorrow. And if I could find funding, I would do it. Uh, we have a, a veterans court in Brooklyn and Queens where we help veterans that are going through the same process, right? And in Brooklyn and Queens, we're, our partners uh, are the DA's office, Gonzalez and Katz, and they very much uh, support this program. And what's happening is that veterans are not seeking help, right? Yeah. So we got, we got to bring that. I know veterans are near and dear to your heart, sir. So that's probably one of the first programs that I will bring. Um, and before I pass it off to Lisa, I think you guys staying in Staten Island, does that have anything to do with the tolls? <laughs> you <don't want> to <laughs> it certainly does part of our mindset here but it's also a great community to live in to raise your families in it's still the safest community of 500,000 people in the country but like other places in the country we certainly have our challenges we did start a veterans court here as well but you're right Bob we're not getting the participation levels that we'd like to and that's something we need to, uh, to speak about before I turn it over to James, opioid crisis has now, because of the advent of fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid that everyone should be talking about every day because it's flooding our country. 
it's a reason that opioid crisis that I talked about in 2016 is now everywhere. And in fact, we are no longer per capita the highest overdose rate borough. The Bronx has passed us as fentanyl came because the fentanyl is being mixed in with heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines, pressed into pills, into pot. And it remains sort of a, a number one public health issue. And last year in our country, over 110,000 people overdosed. And in 2016, 15% of our cases in Staten Island had fentanyl and now over 85%. So this is sort of a, a five alarm fire situation that we have to get out there and we should all be talking about all the time. Uh, I'll just ask James to say a few things and we talk about other issues that we confront as well. Sure. Yeah, so I'm a part of the DA's community partnership unit. When the DA mentioned he's a modern prosecutor, one of the things he started when he took office was the community partnership unit. Kind of seemed like prior to his administration, the DA's office really was just a prosecutor's office. I mm -hmm. think the DA brought in that former experience from the council and from Congress that the DA's office should have an arm that's engaged with the community. And that's what I do each and every day. Working with community partners, civic organizations, community boards, business owners, to sort of bridge that gap between the community and law enforcement, to let them know about what crime trends are out there, how best to prevent it. So that's sort of the work that we do here. You know, not just the prosecutor's office, right? I mean, that's that's interesting. I, I know you can't put that on a bumper sticker, but I mean, that really is the work that you're doing, right? Not just the prosecutor's office. I think that's just amazing. And listen, we could be on this podcast for hours and hours. Thank you to, to Vertical Media for hosting the More to Do podcast. And I know we have more questions. So this, right. uh, let's... I do. So James, talking about community, I had no idea that it was a function of the DA's office at all. I thought it was a program that was bought through the police you know, to be out there and, and kind of educate the community about the law enforcement and, and all the great, you know, things that are happening and educate them about the next laws. But why don't you tell me what that looks like and how that's helped sort of the community to come together? Sure, yeah. You know, on Staten Island, one problem that we really face is property crime, whether that be grand larcenies or grand larceny autos. So our, you know, division, our unit is so focused on how do we prevent those crimes from happening in the first place? I think one of the DA's fundamental beliefs is that a, a crime prevented better than a crime prosecuted if we can help it, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, one, one thing that we have out here in Staten Island is a, a large problem with catalytic converters, catalytic converters being stolen, folks leaving. It's um, amazing, yeah. Yeah, I, I know it's a problem nationwide, but Staten Island really, we had, I think, a 580 catalytic converters stolen just last year. So that's one issue as well as um, grand larceny autos. We, we had 521 stolen vehicles on Staten Island last year. And what's frustrating for the DA, myself, and our you know, dedicated partners in the police department, that 65% of those stolen vehicles either had their keys in the car or the keys themselves, you know, the car was running, right? Mm. So how do we prevent that? Um, Hopefully they weren't yeah. in, in, these, in these cars, right? I yeah. Mean, <laughs> so what did we do? Uh, the community partnership unit started a sign campaign where we're partnering with the business community, right, on Staten Island to place these signs in storefronts across Staten Island to remind uh, patrons. Cool. Yeah, to take that simple precautionary measure 
that will go a long way in protecting our community. I mentioned catalytic converters. Our office partnered with the NYPD, their auto crime unit, their community affairs unit to hold these catalytic converter theft prevention events where uh, NYPD auto crime would physically etch a serial number into person's uh, a vehicle's catalytic converter so that if stolen, it can't be resold. Um, they get put in an NYPD database for better tracking so that hopefully we can prosecute uh, whoever's stealing it. So that's, that's just an example um, of how our community partnership unit works with the community to get that crime prevention message out there and hopefully make Staten Island an even safer place than it already is. That's right. Amanda, you had mentioned the HOPE program. What does that stand for? So it stands for Heroin Overdose Prevention and Education, um, although it, it's not just heroin. So we will accept cases into the program with any drug possession charge, um, as long as it's misdemeanor possession and the person receives a desk appearance ticket, which for New York City means uh, the individual was released from the police precinct at the after their arrest. So rather than going directly to a judge, you receive the desk appearance ticket, you're released from the precinct, and we activate a recovery coach to the precinct. So basically, as the person's released from custody, the recovery coach is there to say, I'm here for whatever you need, and also be able to explain that I've been where you are. I know what it's like, and I know that there's a path out of here. There's a great poem about digging. It's within Alcoholics Anonymous often used a lot that you dig yourself into a hole and you're sitting at the bottom of the hole and all these people come by trying to help you and they're all yelling from the top and it's not until the person climbs down there with you and says, you know, I know the way out, let me show you. And that's sort of the model that we look at because a lot of times people receive that message so differently and so much more hopeful not to be sort of cliche there, but it, it's true that that matters so much to people when they're in that moment of crisis. Yeah. And do you work with EAC programs within, within that capacity? For the HOPE program, we don't. We're partnered with another community-based organization who um, hires the recovery coaches for us. I know that in other boroughs, they are using EAC um, to hire the recovery coaches. All right, so we have yeah. program number 14 coming up here. <laughs> You're listening and watching uh, the More to Do podcast hosted by Vertigo Media. Again, thank you for hosting us. Um, you talked about hope, uh, and we talk about this all the time. We've done the podcast for a little over a year, right? About a year. 13 or 14 yes. podcasts. And as you guys all know, uh, you know the EAC, we're, we're full of acronyms, right? Hope uh, Task is one of our most important programs. API. Treat yeah, ATI, you can go right down the list, right? So treatment alternatives for a safer community. People ask me all the time, what is ATI? What is TASK? And I, I really talk about it. It's not just helping me if I needed help, right? But it's really helping the community. It's getting that person, you know, out of the punitive, you know, um, jail system or prison system, right? It's getting them into treatment. It's getting them back to work. If you get them back to work, they're going to get back to their families. And if they get back to their families, they're going to they're have a more stable community. And that all leads to a safer community. Mr. Day, can you talk a little bit about your work in task and, and really about that sort of, you said it, it's not a prosecutorial, but it's 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 protecting your community through non-prosecution. Yeah, yeah sort of. and where we where we really have a, a, a vigorous partnership with EAC is in the area of mental health, right? So um because or and and some not the hope cases, but the hope cases uh, are 
usually low-level possession cases, but if we get to higher charges or in particular with mental health, and that's where we all have more to do, you know, as to the, 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 the name of this podcast, because what we are seeing is that, and, and you know, whether we talk about the, the terrible case in the subway of Jordan Neely or other cases that come to the forefront, um, is that there are many people who have mental health uh, illness, behavioral health illness, that's not being addressed and treated. And the majority of those people come into contact with the criminal justice system because that mental health illness drives their behavior. And we do not have the systems in place, the treatment, the inpatient, outpatient, uh, psychiatric services, psychological services, medication services available to treat this population. So now everyone is saying, oh, you know, poor uh, Jordan, rightfully so, what happened is terrible. Um, But where was the system before? Why wasn't he diverted from his arrest into some meaningful treatment? And that's not happening. And, and, And the thing about the criminal justice system, in my mind, is it it creates a leverage point, a moment of inflection where individuals, whether they suffer from addiction, mental health crisis, poverty, uh, family pressures, breakdown of family structure, it's a moment to uh, change their behavior. So we work a lot with the uh, uh, EAC folks here on the island, uh, with Crystal and Abby for sure, to find when people are in mental health crisis to get them to some sort of anchoring treatment, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, uh, counseling, what have you, uh, but there's not enough. And there's not enough on Staten Island. That's not EAC's fault. It's really City Hall's fault and Albany's fault. And I don't mind saying it. For years, we've treated uh, mental health illness as a real stepchild in the healthcare system. Uh, it still doesn't have full parity when it comes to uh, insurance. And it's a national crisis, but we're seeing it you know, explode in our communities. So what we have more to do is that we have to continue to advocate for, and, and addiction illness is a behavioral health issue as well, that people, alcoholism, substance use disorder, or mental health system with those being sort of comorbidities, is that the right word, Amanda? We're not doing enough. We don't have enough places to put people, and we see too many back on the street. We have on Staten Island uh, over 7,000 calls for people who are emotionally disturbed, meaning the police get called, um, someone is in crisis, the police turn them over to EMS, EMS delivers them to the psychiatric emergency room, They are not deemed to be a danger to themselves or others, yet they are in crisis and they are released back on the street. Then they go back on the street. Now, what do they do? Some criminal mischief. Or what do they do? They shoplift. Or what do they do? They burgle. Or what do they do? They rob and and escalate. And until we develop uh, and build out those services for, okay, if you're in total crisis and you're a risk to yourself or others, you will be admitted. Even that treatment is not uh, as fulsome as it should be. 28, at best, 28 days, where you probably need six months to a year to get out of the crisis, get a, a regimen of medication to back where you're well, right? And yeah. we don't have that. And this is you know, the city of New York talks about it all the time. They come out with now a Be Heard prob, uh, program. Don't have that on Staten Island. Uh, they talk about uh, these combined uh, traumatic response teams. Don't have that on Staten Island. And we, so we're trying what we're working on now is trying to build out our own version center or uh, support and, and connection center where people can be brought to and make some sort of connection. But I'm the DA. Is that 
my job or is that the healthcare community politicians from well, you know albany all these politicians talk about oh we want progressive prosecutors well their modern prosecutor is telling them that they're advocating their job they're talking about nonsense instead of really rolling up their sleeves and getting to the bottom of these issues not yes. that i feel strongly about it and i have to just, no not yeah. at all not passionate at all you know mental health mental health overall we know it's a broken system right, right. It, it, and it begins at i you know in my opinion it begins because at 21 years old you have no more say right so you have a, a lot of adults that mandate certain things you know you, yeah. you it's up to them it's up to them and so yeah, they end up back on the streets. Uh, it's it's they, it's a they, problem, right? They end up in subways and you know uh, acting irrationally, and something terrible happens to them, like you know what happened to uh, Jordan Neely. It's it's you know, I, and I know we don't want to get into specifics about that case, but I know the mayor talked about that today. None of them are talking about the real issue, and the real issue is, and listen, that case, there's a process. There are there's the police, there's the the, the DA in that jurisdiction. Uh, there's defense. I mean, that case will be examined. But no one, you you don't need that case to look at. You just need to get on the subway, get on a train or a bus on Staten Island, walk through our ferry terminal. You know, we're in, in the northern tip of Staten Island called St. George, and this is where the ferry terminal is right outside our window. We can see it from here. And that has been turned into uh a, a, another ad hoc homeless shelter right you that's what it is and overdoses overdoses we have there that's one of our prime overdose locations thanks amanda you're right and and this this is an issue that uh is not being addressed so all those politicians who are now marching uh to, in downtown manhattan saying this case is an outrage well their behavior is an outrage because they they pass budget after budget without providing the resources to deal with this issue so Roll up your sleeves and get to work, uh, and then you can criticize uh, how individual cases are handled. But until then, they have very little credibility with me because they are not doing their jobs. Right. And I just I want to highlight, like, as as someone who was a healthcare professional, like being now in this office, it it disturbs me that we end up people call here for healthcare assistance. Like my team gets those calls. And I, I spoke at one of our local hospitals last week for an award ceremony, but again, about filling stop gaps that we shouldn't have to fill, that it, it's, it's really this population that's in between, you know, what we can do in criminal justice. And we don't want people who are ill going to jail. That's not the intention. It's not, right. it doesn't help, you know, get, get the medic, medical care that they necessarily need. And it doesn't preempt what's happening. But I've heard time and again that LA County Jail and Rikers Island are the biggest healthcare facilities in America. How can that be? How can that be? Because there's no education, right? And and it's a big it's a big problem. There are a lot of reasons. I mean, right? We don't have all the answers. There are a lot of reasons why that happens. Right. But uh, putting programs together and getting the word out there, and that's why I think the connection between the community is so important. And I'm so happy that you know. You, you guys are leaders in this. I, I think that that's amazing. Um, and and you're right. Your office shouldn't be getting those kind of phone calls. You know, you shouldn't be educating, right? But there there is, I think, a community that just doesn't know what to do or where to go or how to handle certain situations. And so they're reaching out to anyone possible, anyone they anyone they can. People and in thankful, crisis. They're yeah, in crisis. In crisis. They're, and thankfully, you know, they have you that they can call. Um, and, and reach out to, and you're so accessible. 
and you do act uh, within the community at that level. And, you know? we, and we often and we often talk about Lisa and I talk about she's on the board, right? And we often talk. It's a, also a budget issue, right? For New York City, you don't want to put these people in in Rikers Island. It costs, you know, whatever that number is, right? I mean, it, it, it's anywhere between three hundred and four hundred thousand dollars to to house someone in in Rikers Island. Instead of spending that money there, we should be investing in diversion and ATI and all the work that you're doing. In treatment. And, and, and in treatment, certainly. You know, Neil Alaco, our president and CEO, uh, calls our, you guys work so closely together that you're part of staff. You guys are angels walking amongst us. Uh, and that that is a quote from Neela. And I, we just can't thank you enough. And we're not going to keep you on too, too much longer. Uh, one of the things that we talked about, this is the More to Do podcast. Um, for more information on EAC Network, go to eac-network.org. That's eac-network.org. Uh, we went to um, the DA's office uh, two days before we went up to Albany to lobby uh, the state legislature. And you you talked about, sir, uh, about the, the responsibilities of our state elected officials. Um, we got to talk about bail reform, right? We got to talk about how that has affected, negatively affected your job, uh, public safety, what's going on here. If if people are listening, what should we do? What You're the DA, right? What should we do in regards to bail reform? How do we make this better? Yeah. I mean, if if I had a magic wand, I would give uh, more discretion to the judges because every case is different. Um, and, you know, you think about when we got into things like mandatory sentences or mandatory non-sentences, we always got into trouble, whether it's Rockefeller drug laws, whether it's federal mandatory sentencing. And the idea is that you have to give the judges some discretion in every other state in the union the judges have some discretion to look at individuals' records, the nature of the crime, their likelihood to commit another crime, and whether or not detaining them will keep the public safe and stop them from committing more crimes. Lots of times mental health is an ingredient of that. I understand that. And, and the legislature has taken that away, um, except if you have uh, very serious felonies, violent felonies. But the commercial burglar who we have here on Staten Island who's committed at least 30 commercial burglaries when he's arrested, we will not be able to ask for bail, so he'll be back out again. And that's where they they really uh, uh, made this the society less safe, because as we see now that the very serious crimes, gun crimes, very violent crimes are down, but uh, burglaries, robberies, car thefts, uh, crimes you know uh, by youth, these are continuing to occur because a very small group of people are committing them. Until you can disrupt that behavior, uh, bail reform, in my opinion, is going to be a failure. Now, what they did uh, recently, last week up in Albany, was just a Band-Aid on, on the problem because they still didn't return that power uh, to the judges. So um, that being said, they, they did do something. You know, they did uh, give us a little more uh, ability to hold people in. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, they did not change the discovery laws, which is a component of what people talk about under bail reform. Our ADAs are really <clears throat> being crushed under the excessive demands of discovery, and the list goes on. So uh, all policies from Albany coincided with the COVID epidemic, um, and that's why we saw crime rates, which were the lowest in 2019, spike up. And uh, they've made our jobs very difficult. You know, uh, Amanda, I think you mentioned this uh, when we were when we were meeting, uh, and I would love to hear. You know, what's the impact, right? What's the what's the on the ground impact of your work 
with the EAC network. Can you tell us one success story or a 10 or a hundred, whatever the case may be, what's the impact that you're seeing uh, your, your partnership with the EAC network? So yes, I have so many stories. Um, and I have a really good relationship with the director that's on Staten Island, Abby Diaz, um, who's also a clinical social worker. So we speak the same language to some degree and we're able to kind of work within um, both of our worlds. EAC takes our most complicated cases, both clinically complicated and criminal justice wise, like their history is complicated. So we're, there's risk attached to making these decisions. And I understand that, right? So that's why I work in partnership with the attorneys to make sure that they're comfortable with whatever we're doing. But I'll also, I also feel free to state my piece, right? Like my um, concerns when it, psychiatrically or with the substance use history and say that I don't think this incident occurred because this person was trying to make to commit crime. Um, I have a person that I've been working with task locally to try to help get him in. He has a fairly severe history, but it's 15 years ago. The crimes in the last 15 years have all been shoplifts where he's stealing clothes and food and toiletries. And um, drug possession cases. He lives locally in St. George. Every time the cops see him, he has a bench warrant because he hasn't returned to court. And so we sort of have this just revolving situation. And the biggest struggle is he, he appears to me to have a history of PTSD uh, mm -hmm. that's been unaddressed. And so that can complicate things for someone who um, just can't tolerate the idea of being in an inpatient. And so just to really frame it, and, and I'll be just a little graphic for the moment. The last time I saw him, I escorted him from court. He cleared the warrants. And then I walked him over to task to make sure he got there. I handed him off to the staff there where he promptly um, pulled up his pant leg to reveal this abscess that was just half the size of his calf. Mm -hmm. um, the task staff, although not their job, got out their, you know, medical stuff and gave it to him to treat the wound, but he's homeless. And he also has uh, another medical condition that complicates some of the things that he's dealing with that causes seizures. And so they were, they let him sort of fix that up, bandage it up, and then made appointments for him to be escorted to one of the local medical clinics where he was able to re-up some of the medications he needed for the control of the seizures. And really, you know, just it, the, the support of a case manager who can help you with the day-to-day -day stuff like that becomes really important because, oh, and I didn't even mention, and they gave him snacks. So they get, you know, those kinds of things. And I'm Italian. So in the end, these are, that's my love language. Like I want to feed people. I want to make sure that they have those things that they need. And that's the type of warmth that, you know, that EAC can provide for people. And if, if you, if I saw this person on the street, he would be frightening to me. It's not someone that I feel happy to go over and give a hug because of the condition that he's currently in. But that mm -hmm. doesn't matter to the staff. They want to be present to support people however they come. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And they also know how to make it meaningful, right? Because lots of times people, you know, the, the general idea of alternative incarceration is you did something against the norms of society. If you follow these steps, the case either is uh, seriously reduced or it goes away. Um, EAC's job is to uh, keep track accountability to make sure that people are compliant. 
It's in their best interest, whether it's, you know, with their treatment, medication, what have you. And that's a, a big um, function that is, uh, is done that makes what we do here even possible. Because no, the court doesn't keep track. We need, we need a partner that will do that and, 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 and hold the system somewhat accountable, you know, in, in a way that it has a meaningful outcome. Yeah, you know, you can hear nice, warm, you know, anecdotal stories all day long, right? But we're data-driven, and I know you guys are data-driven as well. So we know that in in the country, it's about 50% recidivism rate. In New York State, I think it's 44 or something like that. But the people who are going through the task program, going through the ATI program, going through the programs that you're talking about and the relation and the partnerships that we have in Staten Island, we cut that in half, right? So yeah. we know that our programs work. People that are going through our programs that are working with your officer are, are getting arrested at a much lower rate than the than people who aren't. So that is real data. We know the impact and we just got to keep spreading the word. And that's why we're doing this More To Do podcast. So and we're so just, happy to, to talk about it. That's just some right? of the impact, right? We yeah. talk about that all the time. Yeah. It, there's an economic impact. There's an impact on the community. Sure. And then there's an impact on that individual, which is, you know, just just as strong and just as important. Sure. So, and we want to, and you know, we want to close with with you, sir. And you know, what does the next six months look like? What does the next year look like? What what what's on your what's on your agenda um, as you you know continue your job day to day? But I, of course, part of your job is to look forward. So, you know, what do we what does Staten Islanders have to look forward to in the next six months a year uh, coming from your so, office? So, uh, we're very much committed to um, creating a uh, community uh, justice center so that uh, we can have the, for instance, the, in a place where the task offices or the EAC offices that the individual can come as part of the criminal justice system. Right now, things are spread out uh, here on Sentinel Island. And we, you know, to me, the best thing would be to have a um, mental health professional at a rain, at uh, booking so that we could do an immediate assessment because when someone's arrested for drug possession, we know they probably have a, a, a substance use disorder. When someone's arrested for shoplifting, we don't know right away that it's mental health driven. And so we would like to have a screening done, done at uh, booking time. And then in the community courtroom, we would like to have a place where the judge has the services readily available right there in the courtroom. Because of space limitations and the way Staten Island's developed, we don't have that. Things are all spread out. So we want to work on that together. And that would be a real more to do thing with uh, task and EAC uh, and CRAN. Um, and then we also are working on creating uh, a support and connection slash diversion center so that we deal with that sort of mid-range mental health population where someone's in crisis, but is not being committed uh, against their will. And so those are things that we're working on. Um, we continue to, you know, for the people on Staten Island, we're very much focused on um, those property crimes that James talked about because people aren't feeling safe in the neighborhood because their cars are being stolen, the garage, the house is being broken into. Again, well, much of that is driven by mental health crisis and the negative policies that came from Albany that make it very difficult to hold the recidivists accountable. But we're, uh, they've changed a little bit. Uh, they re removed the um, least restrictive non-monetary condition on some crimes so that we can perhaps make some headway there. Um, but it, it's going to take work. You were a city council person. You were a congressman. Uh, now you're the DA. Which is your favorite job? Oh, that's, that's hands down the DA. And as I said in the beginning, um, 
in at in the city council and Congress, they just talk about the problems and the issues. And here in, in this office, we are uh, developing uh, programs, implementing those programs, moving you know levers to get our government and our non-for-profit uh, partners to engage on these issues. And it's much more effective here. There's no question about it. Well, thank you, Amanda, James, uh, Staten Island VA, Mike McMahon. Thank you for joining us on the EAC More to Do podcast. Keep doing what you're doing, uh, you know, and Thanks. we want to support you. We got to get the, our EAC uh, staff into your Veterans Court. We got to get more yeah. programs in Staten Island. We got to get into the City Council, to the State Legislature, more money into Staten Island, more money into Staten Island. I think that's what we, we got out of it. There's just so much more to do, right? There's just so much more to do. Yeah, and Bob, you have now become an honorary Staten Islander with that talk. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Thank, thank you, you very uh, much. Mr. DA, thank you so much.